The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Have any of you suffered or experiencing suffering now? Are any of you suffering trials? Now, there are many forms of suffering. Persecution is a form of suffering. Has anyone here suffered persecution? Probably not to the degree that people around the world are suffering or experiencing it. Uh, if you've shared the gospel, though, if you've shared it enough, you will experience some sort of persecution. If it's anger or insults thrown at you or maybe they just cut off communication from you, that is a form of persecution. Um, Christian persecution has come upon our shores. Uh, people have lost their livelihoods. They've been fined by the government. Uh, one man was told by a government official that he was not somebody that this country is supposed to be about because he proclaimed the gospel. Um, if you're new here, just know that, you know, I'm not attempting to be political, whether you're a Democrat, Republican, or anything else. You're all welcome here. We welcome all sorts of views. Uh, but persecution is here, and I believe unless God does something different, they'll get louder and more ferocious. But that's not the only form of suffering. There are also financial worries. You know, the worries of whether or not, you know, we're going to be able to make ends meet at the end of the month. The relationships that, that blow up and disintegrate, and there's betrayals, and, and those hurt deeply. I mean, those wounds take a while to recover from. It's also sickness, from short-term illnesses to long-term illnesses. Then there's also the illness and subsequent death of a loved one. Maybe you know my father recently passed away, and you know I discovered how amazing the toll it takes on a person to care for someone that way. Not to mention watching your loved ones suffer. In the midst of your suffering, do you think that God forgot about you? Do you wonder where he is? Do you wonder if he cares? Or do you even think about him at all? We're continuing our series on the attributes of God, and, and today we will explore God's sovereignty. This is a very, uh, can be a controversial attribute to talk about. There are many different views on it. But we're going to hopefully stay true to what Scripture says about it. Because a Christian believes that God is sovereign. And what does that mean? Well, it means that God has supreme power or authority. It means that he has a rightful status. He has an independence. He has a prerogative. It means that he can govern himself and the universe without any interference from outside bodies or outside sources. It means that God is all-powerful and in control. God is sovereign, which means he is in control. And if this is true... How does it affect how we respond to our trials? Hopefully you will see that it's his sovereignty that keeps us going in our suffering, in our trials, and hopefully we'll see, a God's, we'll see God's beauty in his sovereignty. Now, in light of God's sovereignty, and given the fact that he is all-powerful and in control, what should the Christian response be to trials? Let's take a look at our text. Uh, verse 23, Acts 4, when they were released. Now, first we have to figure out who they are, and to determine who they are, we have to go back to Acts chapter 3. 
In Acts chapter 3, we see the apostles Peter and John going up to the temple to pray. And as they're approaching the temple, they see a man that was lame since birth. Uh, he's begging. And Peter grabs him, and this man is immediately healed. And now he's jumping about, he's leaving on his legs are strong, his ankles are strong, and he's jumping around, and all the people who knew he was lame see this, and it's caused quite a commotion. Okay, so Peter and John took the opportunity whoops, to preach the gospel. And at this point, over 5,000 people turned to Christ. Now that is uh, quite, a, quite a sermon preached when you have over 5,000 people turn to Christ. But preaching the resurrection of Christ brought consternation from the chief priests and the other religious leaders there. And they had Peter and John arrested. Next day, they're brought to trial. And during the trial, they, they were asked, you know, how is this, how this man made well? And again, they pr proclaimed the gospel. They proclaimed again that Jesus came and died on a cross for the, gift, for the forgiveness of sins, and he rose from the dead. And this whole rising from the dead thing is which really set them on edge because some of the people of Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. But the chief priests warned them not to preach the name of Christ again. So they threatened them further and then released them. Now, Peter and John followed Jesus throughout his three-year ministry. They, they witnessed all the wonderful things he did, all his miracles. They, they witnessed his hanging on the cross. They witnessed the resurrected Jesus they were commanded by Jesus to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. And for the first time, they're now getting resistance. They're now getting pushback. And now they're being persecuted for the faith. Now, what was Peter and John's response to their trial? What should the Christian response be to trials in light of God's sovereignty? When the weight of your suffering is upon you, how should the Christian respond? Well, together... They should praise him for his sovereignty, asking him for help, and act in obedience. When faced with trials, the Christians should meet together to share the trials, turn to God in praise and prayer, asking him for the power to speak the word of God with boldness, knowing that he hears our prayers, and then act in obedience. So we'll see four things here. We'll see that they met together, they praise God for his sovereignty. They ask him for help. Then act in obedience. After the apostles were released, they met together and shared their struggles with other believers. We see in verse 23 again, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Now it doesn't say they went to other apostles or they went to church leadership. They went to their friends. They went to other believers. In other words, they went to church. Now, they didn't have a church building then. A lot of times when we think of going to church, we think of a building. When we say we're going to church, we probably think of this building here. But church is not a building. Church is a community of believers in Jesus Christ. So all of you sitting here that believe in Jesus Christ, you are the church. And when you minister to someone that is suffering, I mean, that, that's church happening. That is church. I mean, pick up a brother and sister and take them to their doctor's appointment or visit them in the hospital. That's church. When we meet together as Christians, as believers, I mean, we've gone to church. And whether it's here at someone's house or you meet at a coffee shop, and, I mean, that's church. But don't hear what I'm not saying, okay? 
I met a very dear brother for breakfast last Tuesday. Does that mean I don't have to come here today? Aside from the fact I'm preaching, no, it doesn't mean that at all. You know, we're still expected to meet together uh, at church. Because here is where we fellowship with God and we fellowship with each other. Now, the apostles met together and shared their suffering with them. And it shows the, part, the importance of being a part of a local church. Because we have a unique relationship in the sense that we are part of the body of Christ. And, but specifically, we're part of the local community such that we know each other, we, we can meet together, we know each other's names. And there's an intimacy that because of our unity in Christ, the bonds between us should be the strongest relational bond, bonds that we have. Because of this, when trials or suffering come upon us, is the community of believers that you belong to that you should turn to. Now, the example of the apostles teaches us to get together and share our suffering. And I am so grateful to Fountain of Life that God has brought us together, and by his grace, I believe we are a, a loving church. I mean, we're willing to, and eager to pray for each other and help each other. And I pray that our love for each other will continue to abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. However, it is imperative that if you are suffering that you let your family know what is happening. And, and let us know what you're going through. And I know it's not always easy to do that, but I would encourage you to let go of whatever it is that's holding you back and, and share your struggles so we can pray for you, so we can help you. Do what we can for each other. Lift each other up. Get together, brothers and sisters, and share your suffering with them. Well, the apostles went to their friends and shared their suffering, and they praised God for his sovereignty. See in verse 24, when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Now here we see God's sovereignty in creation. He is the creator. God made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in it. God not only created the universe and everything in it, he also preserves it and he governs everything in it. We also call this providence. Providence would be God's intervention in creation. It's the foreseeing care and guidance of God over the universe and everything in it, including the creatures created in his image. That would be us. Now, some believe that God created the universe and they kick back and just let it fly. Doesn't care what's going on, doesn't look at what's going on. And this is called deism. And nowhere does it say in Scripture that God is not involved. Throughout Scripture, we see that he is involved and in control. Nor does Scripture teach what is called pantheism. Pantheism teaches that creation is not a, or that God is a part of creation, that God is in the walls, he's in rocks, he's, you know, he's, he's not separate and distinct from creation. But Scripture made, says he made the universe, therefore he is not part of it, but he's outside of it. Scripture teaches that God is continually involved in all created things such that God maintains and sustains his creation. And he cooperates, and secondly, he cooperates with his creation in every action, causing them to act as they do. So God has created everything with certain properties, and within those properties, he causes them to act. And he directs them to fulfill his purposes. So first of all, God maintains and sustains his creation. So from the biggest stars to the tiniest of atoms, God holds them together and directs their paths. He, he says to the planets, go, and they go. And should he cease to hold them together, then they would cease to exist. He cooperates with his, 
creation, every action, causing them to act as they do, all for his glory. He also controls the weather. We see in Psalm 135.7, He it is who made the clouds rise at the end of the earth, makes the lightnings for the rain, and brings forth the wind from, his, from the storehouses. We see in Matthew 6.26, He feeds the animals. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor wheat nor gather in the barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. He controls seemingly random or chance events. We see in Proverbs 16.3, the lot is cast in the lap, as every decision is from the Lord. Casting lots is a way to, when you have two equal choices, you know, what do we do? Well, we'll leave it to the Lord. We'll roll the dice. We'll flip a coin. That's what casting lots are. So every time you go to Vegas, you roll those dice, it comes up according to what God wants them to be. The lottery numbers come up according to the way God wants them to come up. Anything we ascribe to luck, whether it's good or bad, is determined, or, or whether we, we see as good or bad, is determined by God. He also controls the affairs of nations. You see that in Job 12, 23. He makes nations great, and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. Psalm twenty-two thirty-eight says, For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he is governor among the nations. Even... He even influences the decisions of rulers. He controls all aspects of our lives. He gives us food each day. We pray that in Lord's Supper. Give us this day our daily bread. He provides the clothing and shelter we enjoy. He provides the means by which we support ourselves. All the talents and abilities that we have are from the Lord. And he influences our decisions. He directs people to act in order to fulfill his purposes. Now, the apostles, they recognize God's sovereignty and they praise him for it. See in verse 25, Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, now they start quoting Psalm 2. You ever get a chance to read Psalm 2? It's a wonderful, I love this psalm. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now they're thanking him for his sovereignty and celebrating his sovereignty as he carries out his plan. So God directs his people, his pur God directs people for his purposes and People are responsible for their actions. Here we see in Psalm 2, or how they're using Psalm 2, how Herod is the king of the earth, and Pontius Pilate is the ruler, and the Gentiles, well, they're the Gentiles, and the Jews would be the people. They're all coming together, all coming together to try to thwart God's plan, but it's in vain because God brought these people together to culminate the worst moment in history, which would be the hanging of Jesus on the cross. Now, all this was done for the purpose of fulfilling the purpose and plan of God. Now, they recognized, the apostles and the, and the friends recognized that God was in control and even caused his enemies to carry out his purposes. See, they thought they had won when they hung Jesus on the cross, but instead, all they were doing was carrying out what God's power had predetermined. 
Now, apostles also teach us to turn to God together in praise for his sovereignty as creator and Lord, who is even sovereign over the cross for our good. Now, there's a question. If God directs decisions, are those decisions real? Is it possible that events are 100% caused by God and 100% caused by the creature as well? We see in Exodus with Pharaoh, where God continually hardened Pharaoh's heart, and Pharaoh did as God wanted him to do. Yet scripture says that Pharaoh was responsible for his actions. See this in Genesis, when, when Joseph's brothers threw him in the pit and sold him into slavery. They were responsible for, those, for that action. But yet God used that. What they meant for evil, God used it for good because he used Joseph in order to save his people through the famine. Throughout the Old, the Old Testament, nations are used to punish Israel for their disobedience. They're raised up, and armies brought to conquer Israel and punish them. But woe to those nations. Woe to those nations. So how is it that God can direct actions and decisions and the person that acted in the way God wanted them to is responsible for their actions? We find in Scripture that it declares both divine sovereignty and human responsibility. See, God does not force anyone to act against their will. Nor is their conscience, nor, nor are they conscious of God's influence over them. The choices we make are real, we are responsible for them, and they carry out the purpose and plan of God. The Bible tells us what and why. The what is that God brings about his plan through the willing choices of real human beings who are morally accountable for their actions. And it tells us why. It's for his purpose and for our good. How? Well, that's the mystery the Bible does not reveal to us. But we know both are true. But we cannot see how they are both true together. All we know is that the Bible says it is, and the Bible does not reveal how to us. The Bible is clear in teaching that God is sovereign and people are responsible. Back to our text, we also see that they're in united, urgent prayer to God the Father. There's a little more than a little more beautiful than a united congregation, all coming together, praising God. And it's important to be united since the world is united against us. And within the sharing of their suffering through the sovereignty of God, they're divinely inspired to lift up their voices in unison, all being influenced by the same spirit, praising for his sovereignty, praising for his providence. So they met together to share their suffering. They praised God for his sovereignty. The apostles also teach us to ask us for help. Starting in verse 29, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. So how do you handle persecution? How do you handle trials? How do you handle suffering? We see here that they prayed now what's at stake here is the gospel. The gospel here is at stake. And they ask God to take note of what is going on. Say, we are being threatened to not speak in your son's name anymore. 
So your son, the one in whom you are well pleased, they're telling us to not speak in his name anymore. And, and they're telling God, I mean, he, he knows us. They're telling God that nothing is of greater value to you than the name of your son. And yet they're telling us to stop. And then what did they pray for? Well, they asked for help. They said, this is what we need. They asked for boldness, boldness to preach the gospel. And that he would stretch out his hand to, help, to heal people. And that they prayed for the power to preach God's word with boldness so that the name of Jesus would be vindicated. They met together and shared their suffering. They prayed God for his sovereignty. And they asked God for help. Finally, the apostles responded with obedience because they knew they could trust their sovereign God. Now, there is a serious error called fatalism. Fatalism is a belief that we are powerless and what is going to happen will happen. Calvinists have an awful reputation of, of not sharing the gospel because they believe they don't need to because whomever God will save will become saved. The doctrine of sovereignty does not encourage us to sit back and, and let things progress and wait for the outcome of events. Not acting in obedience or, is, or responsibly by simply saying we're trusting God is laziness and a distortion of providence. And this is not what we see in Scripture. In 2 Samuel 10, we see in around verse 11, we see that um, the Assyrians and the Ammonites are coming up against Israel. And Joab, the commander of the army, he splits the army in two. One to fight the Syrians, gives the other to Abishai to fight the Ammonites. And Joab says to, to, to Abishai, you know, if, if they're coming after me, if I'm losing, then you come help me. If you're losing, I'll come help you. And then he says in verse 12, be of good courage, and let's be courageous for our people for the, and for the cities of our God. I mean, the Lord do what seems good to him. Now, here's a, here's a case where they were called to fight, and they fought. They didn't know what was going to happen. They didn't know how it was going to turn out. But they trusted God through his sovereignty that whatever's going to come out would be good to him, and that's what they were fighting for. So we see him acting in, the, in obedience. Then we see in Acts 18, starting in verse 9, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have met many in the city who are my people. Now at that time, from Paul's perspective, God's people weren't his people yet. They would not become his people until Paul preached the word of God to them. And Paul was obedient and went and preached the gospel. And it's through Paul's preaching that the people that God said were his became God's people. So the ones, the, the apostles, the ones who wrote the scriptures and wrote about God's sovereignty, they, they never believe that they can just sit back and just let God do his thing. They believe they needed to be obedient. They needed, they, they needed to take action. They needed to do what God wanted them to do. Because they, they knew that through the preaching of the gospel is how people get saved. And so they went about when they were obedient. <clears throat> now next now, in verse 31, we see, And when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, we see here that the apostles and their friends prayed. And if the apostles needed to pray, how much more do we need to pray? 
You all see that the apostles and their friends were filled with the Holy Spirit. The apostles needed the Holy Spirit. How much more do we need the Holy Spirit? Now, because pre Scripture says the building shook, we tend to believe that this is a special event. But the only thing that is unique about this event is the shaking of the building. For them, it is an immediate sign to them that God had heard their prayer. But we see praying and the Holy Spirit acting throughout Scripture. Today, God hears our prayers. Today, God fills us with his Holy Spirit, and we should be praying for it like they were. And this prayer is a wonderful model for how to seek the power of the Spirit. This is a specific and not a general way of praying. It says, give us boldness. They pray for boldness and healing, for Jesus to be proclaimed and honored and glorified. It's a wonderful way to pray. So what, <clears throat> what does God being sovereign mean to us in the midst of our suffering? Did God abandon you? Did he forget about you? Was he caught off guard? Not at all. Our God is sovereign and he does whatever he pleases. He's also trustworthy. What he says will come to pass. And we know that there is a meaning to our suffering. Our trials actually come from God. They're not random, they're not accidental, they're not wasted. There is a purpose behind them. And these trials, the suffering is for our benefit. As James 1-2 says, count all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and that steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Suffering tests the genuineness of our faith. They refine us and purify us. They sanctify us. And this is all part of God completing the work in us that he has started. They make us more dependent upon God. They give us an opportunity to glorify God and proclaim the gospel. Now, we understand the world is broken and full of sin. The repercussions of that is that we will suffer. But God is all-powerful and in control, and he is working in the midst of our suffering. And it's all for our good and his glory. It was a see in Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. So remind yourself of who you are in God, who you are in Christ. It's one of the things we stress here, not just preaching the gospel. We also stress preaching the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself of who you are in God. Remind yourself of how God loved you so much that he sent his son, Jesus, to live a perfect life, pleasing the Father. There's never a moment in the life of Christ where he did not worship God the Father as he deserves to be worshiped. But he was hung on a Roman cross and died for your sins. Your sins, my sins, everyone's sins. There was a moment in our lives where we honored God and praised him as he deserves to be praised. And yet Jesus died on a cross for our sins. All of our sins were placed on Jesus. Past, present, future sins. As he's hanging on the cross, crying out to God the Father, God turned his back on him and crushed him. But to show that God the Father was pleased with his sacrifice, he raised him from the dead. You have been united to Christ as life, death, and resurrection. You have been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. You have been declared righteous. When God looks at you, he sees his son, Jesus. He has removed your heart of stone, giving you a heart that loves him 
that praises him and wants him. And when God looks at you, he sees a son, and now you have the right to call yourself a child of God. Now, we can read in Acts and in his letters how Paul suffered. He was whipped, I think, five times with what's called cat of nine tails. It has bone fragments. Every time a whip comes down upon your back, it just rips open your back. 39 times you get that. That happened to him five times. He's been stoned and left for dead. He's been imprisoned, shipwrecked. But Paul knew the sovereignty of God. In fact, what we know about the sovereignty of God, a lot of it comes from Paul himself. He knew that when the whip came down, the man who whipped him was responsible for what he was doing, and yet God placed him, Paul there and placed this man there. This man was accountable. The person who directed this man to do this was accountable. Everyone who threw a stone and pelted him with a stone was responsible for their action, but Paul knew that that was there for God's glory and for his good. And every time he got back up and preached the gospel, he persevered through all that. In fact, as he wrote Romans, the letter to the Romans, he breaks out in praise. 1133 says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who's known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given the gift to him that he must be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Paul knew that in the midst of his suffering, God was there. He also knows, as we should know, that the sufferings of this world pale in comparison to the glory and joy that awaits us in the presence of the Lord. So what should the Christian response be to trials in light of God's sovereignty? When faced with trials, the Christians should meet together and share their trials, turn to God in praise and prayer, knowing that he is in control, asking for the power to speak the word of God in boldness, knowing that he hears our prayers, and then act in obedience. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are sovereign. We thank you that you are in control. We thank you that death has been vanquished, that evil has been vanquished. We praise you, Lord, for your son Jesus, whom you sent to die for us. We thank you to raise him from the dead. And Father, we thank you that you've united us to your son and that we have a right to call ourselves a child of God. Father, I pray that if anyone here that does not know you yet, that today they will cry out to you. Cry out to you. Soften their heart, Lord. Give them a new heart, Lord. May they be saved. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.fountainoflifefellowship.com folfcrc.com